0: I would uh, like to tell you all a wonderful story this morning. It's uh, one that John told in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. But before I do, I want to uh, read a section out of our mission statement, that uh, statement that I referred to last week and I think the week before. Uh, For the last few months, the elders have been Doing a lot of thinking about the direction that uh, we believe God is leading this church and putting together a mission statement as well as seven specific uh, objectives, parameters, fixed reference points around which uh, we orient our ministry. We talked last week about the first of those objectives, prayer, and the uh, strategic place that prayer has in our ministry as the highest expression of our dependence upon God. This morning I want to talk to you about the second of those objectives which is evangelism. We define evangelism in in our paper as communicating the gospel to the world through word and through life. We believe that every believer is commissioned to be a witness. Every heart without Christ a mission field. Every heart with Christ a missionary. Though we weave evangelism into every aspect of our ministry, Christian witness properly belongs to the saints and should take place primarily in the world and not in the gatherings of the church. For that reason, we gather to grow and we scatter to befriend and seek the lost for Christ. Though we do not see our church gatherings as evangelistic in nature, we want them to be seeker-friendly Safe places where non-Christians will have an opportunity to experience Christian love and hear the good news. Our only offense should be the offense of the cross. While we believe in forthright witness, we seek the spirit of the Apostle Paul when he wrote, The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them, to a knowledge of the truth. Now I want to look at John 4 as a way of elaborating on that uh, that statement. I love this story. It's one of my favorite narratives in the Gospels. It's a story of the woman at the well and her encounter with uh, with our Lord. A tradition gives her the name Photine, uh, P-H-O-T-I-N-E. I have no idea whether that tradition is accurate or not, but I'm going to use that name when I refer to her because it makes her, somehow in my mind, it makes her more real, more corporeal. Uh, she has substance, reality. And uh, so we'll call her Fotein. This is basically a conversation between our Lord and this woman that he encountered at the well, the story of how she met the man she'd been, look, been looking for all of her life. John begins by telling us why Jesus left Jerusalem. Uh, John 3 is the account of uh, his conversation with Nicodemus. John 4 takes place in another location in Samaria, near the city of Sychar. John tells us uh, why Jesus uh, left Judea. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. John had excited a great deal of uh, envy and fear among the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Now his followers were following Jesus, and in order to avoid a premature collision with the Pharisees, our Lord left. He really did not have time to engage in that sort of uh, debate. He wanted to get on with the business of bringing salvation to the world. And so he went back to Galilee, his uh, home homeland. And the text tells us that he had to pass through Samaria. Normally, Jews went a very roundabout way to get to Samaria. If you look at a a map of Israel today, Samaria is uh, what we call the West Bank. It's that enclave in the center of of Israel that divides the northern part of Israel from the south. It was disputed territory then as, as now. Jews uh, despised Samaritans. And feared a lot of antipathy between the two uh, two groups. A lot of hostility. Uh, the their feelings toward uh, these folks up in Samaria goes way back into antiquity. I, I don't want to take time to uh, to give all the background, but at one point in Israel's history, back in the eighth century, when the Assyrians uh, occupied Israel, the northern kingdom. They, the uh, king of Assyria, who was Ezra Haddon at the time, uh, depopulated that region and imported a number of uh, pagan idolaters who intermarried with the Jews that were, they were left behind. And this odd religion developed, a kind of quasi-Jewish religion that had some elements of Judaism, but also a number of pagan elements. They adopted uh, much of the Bible, the Jewish Bible. And in particular, the Pentateuch, but they distorted it, changed it. Uh, Mount Gerizim, which is a mountain in Samaria, became the city, uh, the the mountain on which Abraham worshipped when he entered the Promised Land. That was the place where he met Melchizedek. Uh, That was the spot where he uh, set out to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, Samaritans would point to Gerizim and they would say, We... We're to worship God on this mountain rather than Mount Zion down in Jerusalem. You may recall from our studies in, uh, in Nehemiah that the Samaritans tried to disrupt the rebuilding of the temple after, after the exile. A lot, of, a lot of bad blood between these people. Couldn't stand each other. And that's why uh, Jews by and large circumvented Samaria. Instead of traveling due north, they would cross the Jordan. Uh, go up uh, the east side of the Jordan in what today is the country of Jordan, and then they would cross the Jordan up near its headwaters and would uh, make their way into Galilee. Uh, it would be like uh, traveling to McCall, but going through the Weezer Valley to get there, going through Council and Cambridge and Weezer, and it's very much out of the way. But they did not want to have any contact with uh, with the Samaritans. The word Samaritan was a pejorative in that day. It was was a bad word, ugly word, dirty word. Uh, On one occasion, the Pharisees said of Jesus, you're you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. Uh, He was neither, of course, neither demon possessed nor was he he a Samaritan. And believe me, they did not intend it to be anything other than, than an insult. You may recall that our Lord made a Samaritan the hero of one of his stories. Jesus wasn't a racist. Uh, the Good Samaritan, seen in that context, has a lot more uh, significance. Jesus loved Samaritans. In fact, uh, the expression to act like a Samaritan today is a, is a tribute. Our Lord made it that way. He loved these people. That's why he had to go through Samaria. Then as now, a straight line was the shortest distance between two points, and he didn't want to waste a whole lot of time going through, uh, through uh, uh, Transjordan. So he, he took the direct route all the way up to, to Galilee. But uh, there's another reason, I think, why our Lord had to go there. He was a man under authority, uh, as we are. He took his instructions every day from the Father. Got up in the morning. And as he put it, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. He was a man utterly dependent upon the Father. We talked last week. About prayer and its expression of our dependence upon God. Our Lord was a man of prayer; it was the essence of His life. And you see, the father was seeking this uh, this woman in Samaria, and he wanted to get our Lord to that region so that he could give witness, and bring salvation to her. And that's why our Lord had to go through Samaria in His incarnation. He laid aside uh, His His omniscience. He didn't know what the father had in mind for him, but he was prompted by the father to to go in that direction. And so he went to Samaria and he found himself in high noon at the well. He came to a town in Samaria. I'm reading verse 5. Called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. John uses Roman time. Uh, so the sixth hour then would be noon. Uh, our Lord probably got up about daybreak. That's normally when they began to travel, made his way uh, north through Judea. Had been walking about 20 miles by the time he reached Sychar. He weary. Uh, he was human as well as divine. He was hungry, blazing hot, sultry uh, heat in that, in that region. Sat down by the well, uh, sent his disciples into town to buy hamburgers, and uh, he was resting there. Let me tell you something about wells. Uh, they're very significant in the Bible. Culturally, wells were places where people gathered to socialize. Uh, women normally would get up early in the morning uh, before the sun would get up, and they'd make their way down to the well. and That was a place where people congregated. They didn't have Good Morning America back then, so that was a way to catch up on the news. They would chat, talk about their families. But interestingly enough, there was also a place where you went to meet your potential mate. People didn't date back then, and it really was not culturally appropriate to spend a lot of time with the opposite sex, so women would congregate there, and men would congregate there. And if you think back through the Old Testament, that's where Rachel met her potential mate, and that's where Rebecca... Dead, and that's where Moses met one of the daughters of uh, the priest of Midian. That was Zipporah was her name. So wells were very significant places. And I want you to file that away in the back of your mind when you think about this woman who spent her whole life looking for a man. And she found the man she'd been looking for at that well. That's why this is such a wonderful story. There are conventions uh, built into all of Scripture and this well symbol is one of them. This was this dear woman had, as you know, had gone through five husbands, and she had finally given up trying to find the right man, and she was living with someone who was not her husband. You sense something of the hunger of, of her heart, and, and that that well was the place where she connected with the man she'd been looking for. It's up to the father. You get the sun at the right place at the right time to say the right thing. You know, we think of witness as something uh, very scary and hard to do. And you have to have a lot of information and you have to know a lot of apologetics and a lot of theology. But it really just begins out of our times of solitude with God, opening up our heart to him, what we are speak so profoundly, and as God is shaping our lives and changing us, uh, setting about working upon us to, to make us what He wants us to be, then that begins to communicate to people. All we have to do is say, I'm available. I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll say anything, I'll trust you to put your words in, in my mouth. And Then it, it's up to God to get us to the right place at the right time. Our Lord uh, saw this woman making her way through the haze pot on her shoulder. Uh, verse seven says that she came to draw water. It was extraordinary that she would show up at high noon because by that time most people were in their homes. It's hot. No one went to a well in the middle of the day, but you see this woman was uh, she was an outcast. she was a pariah. The, the, the good women. And would have nothing to do with her. Uh, she was the town trollop. Everybody knew about this woman. She had an enormous amount of shame. And uh she she was making her way all alone to the well. She didn't want to meet anybody. She didn't want to see anybody. She didn't want anybody to see her. The Lord spotted her coming. Came to the well, set her pot down, drew the drew water out of the well. Actually, the well's still there. Seen it very deep, about 150 feet deep. So it's quite a, if it's the same well, it's a lot of work to draw water out of that well. She pulled up the bucket or whatever utensil they used to draw water uh, from that well and poured it into the little vessel she was, she was carrying. And the Lord says to her, would you please give me a drink? <laughs> It was an awkward moment. Here's a single man, single woman, meeting alone at the well. Nobody else around. You know, again, in that culture, that just didn't do that. Men and women didn't meet like that in private. And if they did, they didn't strike up a conversation. And she uh, Fotine was flummoxed when when uh, the Lord asked her for a drink, and she says to him, "You're you're a Jew." And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jewish men didn't talk to women, period. You know how they thought about women. You know, the famous uh, Jewish male prayer every morning, they got up and thanked God that they weren't a woman. Yeah, I'm serious. And so she was uh, startled that he, that he even spoke to her. And secondly, he was a Jew speaking to a Samaritan woman. It's a double whammy. And furthermore, he was actually asking to drink from her vessel. That's the uh, sense of the phrase that, that John appends here. Uh, the latter part of that verse really ought to be in parentheses. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Those are not her, her words. That's, that's John's editorial comment. And literally the phrase reads, Jews don't use with Samaritans. In other words, they don't drink out of the same utensil. I grew up in the South. And there were drinking fountains for blacks, and there were drinking fountains for whites, and whites never drank at black fountains, and vice versa. It's a civil offense, as a matter of fact. Terrible, dehumanizing cultural uh, trait, custom. Uh, I don't think people even thought about it, what it what it did to uh, the black people that lived in that area. But but this was the custom. Among Jews, you didn't even use their... You see, that's what struck this woman. Here's our Lord breaking generational barriers, stepping across gender barriers, stepping across cultural, social barriers. Why? Because our Lord wasn't sexist. He wasn't racist. He wasn't elitist. He just loved people wherever He found them. So should we. And one of the things we've got to do is to Ask God to give us his eyes. See people as he sees them. What well, people are looking for is love more than anything else. Uh Niesbitt says the world is cold, we have to repersonalize it. A lot of wisdom in that in that term. Uh, we've got to start treating people as, as real people. You know, the kid with the long hair down the block, the Young woman who, uh, who wears her dresses too short, too tight, you know, who works right down the hall, who's too provocative in her ways, the dirty old man that lives next door. These are the people that we tend to overlook. Jesus loves them. Sees their hearts, sees their searching, sees their hungers and thirsts, wants to love them through us. Some of you may have seen the movie Elephant Man about that uh, terribly uh, grotesque man. He was so ugly he was kept out of sight in a dungeon. He escaped one day. Uh, crowds followed him, jeering at him. Finally, hemmed him in, cornered him, and he, he cried out, "Leave me alone! I'm a human being." And that's what people are crying out to us: "I'm a human being." Uh, creatures of God's uh, making, <clears throat> people that he loves. God loves the world. We can't we can't love the world, but we can love the next person that we come across. I am more and more convinced that uh, we're, we're much too wordy in our witness. Uh, Ron uh, Ritchie, who was speaking at the men's conference this weekend, reminded me of an old St. Francis saying, Witness every day and occasionally use words. Uh, St. Francis is right. <clears throat> so much of our witness comes through the incarnation of truth in us as God is shaping our souls and remaking us after his image. Uh, we're able to touch lives profoundly. You know, there isn't a whole lot of love out there in our world today. Jesus said that our world's going to get colder and colder and, and it certainly is. And uh, we talk about pre-evangelism in terms of what we say to people, but I really think the, that our pre-evangelism needs to take place in the context of loving relationships and compassion and patience and tenderness, <clears throat> and love for people. It's what they're looking for. It's just it's a wonderful uh, picture of of God's compassion seen in the way our Lord dealt with this uh, with this woman. Uh, our Lord goes on to uh, uh, continue the conversation. And I think the thing that intrigues me about this, if I could put it this way, I don't mean any disrespect, but it's so off the wall. Uh, much of our witness, I think, is far too explicit. There's nothing wrong with giving people the facts of the gospel. We've got to do that. Most people in our culture really don't know what Christians believe. They tend to uh identify us with certain causes that we've espoused, but they do not know what the gospel is. I would be willing to bet that if you went down the street conducting a survey asking people what Christians believe, you would not hear anything about our Lord's coming to save. Um, We've got to be we've got to give people something to believe, but at the same time, I often think we're far too direct. George uh, uh, McDonald said the best thing we can do for people is to wake up things in themselves, to help them think out things for themselves, to ask them questions. A couple of my favorite questions are simply to ask someone what their philosophy of life is and then just let them talk. Uh, It's hard for me to listen and not say something. You you, want to correct them or in some way redirect their conversation. But I think some of them, one of the most loving things we can do is just just listen. Hear what they have to say. It's interesting to hear what people have to say. Uh, one man to whom I address that question spelled out a philosophy of life that was uh, very materialistic. And when he got through, he, he said, what is that Now that I hear my, hear what I think, that's pretty crass, isn't it? He said. Sometimes people actually paint themselves right into a, into a corner. But we need to help people learn to think for themselves, to recognize that hunger that they have within, the thirst that's there. And that's what our Lord is doing. I I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the conversation. You know how it went, but, uh, let me just read it so you get some feel for it. Jesus said to her, if you just just knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, again, you see, our Lord is being very oblique. He isn't coming straight at her. Uh, he's using a metaphor, a double entendre. The phrase living water is a, is a Semitic idiom for uh, running water. It was used of streams and springs in contrast to cisterns and wells, standing water that was inclined to be stagnant. And living water was a scarce commodity. and In fact, it is all over the the, uh, ancient world, was uh, over the ancient world. So she would think in those terms, but our Lord was thinking something entirely different. Underlying that symbolic term was, was the reality of God providing living water. It is a source of uh, a resource for life. Living water is water that has a life giving quality to it. Uh, if you look a few chapters over in John 7, Jesus becomes more explicit. This is one of his favorite analogies. If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, period. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within. Him. Now the hymn refers to Messiah. All through the Old Testament, you have this uh, wonderful figure of the Messiah coming and from his innermost being flowing rivers of living water. This is the one that will satisfy all of our hungers, all of our thirst. And see what the Lord is doing? He's trying to draw her out. He's very indirect, but he's moving toward the goal of helping her to see that all of her hungers and all of her longings and all of her thirsts are really hungers and thirsts for God. And he is the one who can satisfy that thirst. That's that's the point of the gospel. He's what we've been looking for. All of our desires for wealth and power and, and influence and athletic excellence or whatever are really just hungers for God. You know, my uh, G.K. Chesterton quote that I'm so fond of that, even when men knock on the door of a brothel they're looking for God but all of our longings our hungers our really hungers for him say now she wasn't aware of that she knew she hungered and thirsted but she didn't know why and she didn't know where that thirst could be slacked and what our Lord is doing is drawing her to that final conclusion so he says to her if you just knew who it is is talking to you'd ask and I'd give And I give you living water and she, oh, that's wonderful. She thought, you know, you're, you have some power to, to produce a spring in my backyard. I won't have to come down here and draw water anymore. And, And Jesus says, no, no, that's really not what I'm talking about. Anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life and i don't know at what point it began to dawn on her what she was talking about but uh, he's moving more toward letting her know that he is the source he is he is the man that she's been looking for see her her pursuit has, was for romance she thought she would eventually find some man who would love her and then she would feel good about herself so she had gone through husband after husband after husband, five of them, and finally had just given up legitimatizing the whole thing, and she was living with some fellow. But she was still empty and felt unloved. The Lord is saying, look, I'm the one you've been looking for all your life. That's why he raises the question. uh, uh, That's why he says to her in verse uh, 16, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. I don't think our Lord said that harshly at all. I think his face, his eyes demonstrated compassion for her. He knew the hungers that had driven her through those disastrous relationships. What he wanted her to see is that he was the husband she had been looking for throughout her uh, entire life. As C.S. Lewis says of this passage, the great angler was double-baiting his hook, beginning to draw in. I, I I think that as his witnesses, we need to work hard at being creative in our witness. I think we're far too explicit. And again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should not present the gospel to people. We've got to give them something to believe. But I... I would hope that all of us are thinking through the gospel in terms of our story and how to talk about Christ in terms of our metaphors and, and our experience and our symbols and, and our culture and the things that will help people sense what's going on inside of them so that they're they're drawn to it. To relax, I guess I can put it that way, to just relax and be yourself and and talk about our Lord and the way you come to understand him out of those times of, of solitude with him. And do not react to people when they get uptight and angry and hostile. I heard recently a, a story of a man who was passing out New Testaments. And a man took the New Testament and uh, uh, scoffed. He said, uh, well, I've been needing some papers to roll smokes, so I'll use this. At which point some Christian's fangs would come out and they would say, give me that Bible back, you know. This fellow had the grace to say, oh, okay, alright, sure, smoke it up, but let me ask you, let me ask you to do a favor for me. Before you roll a cigarette, read what's on the pages. The guy said, okay, that's fair enough. Several months later he came back and he said, I smoked Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> and when I got to John 3.16, I understood. Oh, that's wonderful, Maybe that, that deft, creative touch that that makes the gospel so meaningful to uh, to people. Well, she tries to tangle him in a theological argument, verse uh, 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. My goodness, yes, he was a prophet. It's seen right into the inner recesses of her private life. This was a revelation that the father had given to him. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, she says, pointing toward Mount Gerizim, which is just a little bit to the south west of Sychar. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, you see, this would be the point where most of us would enter into vigorous theological debate. The Lord says, oh, excuse me, wait a minute. We're not going to talk about Jerusalem and Gerizim and all that stuff. Believe me, woman, the time's coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. All that stuff's irrelevant. We're going to talk about something more significant. The time, verse 23, the time is coming and has now come. Because the one who fulfills all prophecy was standing right in front of her. The time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Who are true worshipers? Those that that genuinely seek God with all of their hearts. And what is a mark of a true worshiper? Well, not that he or she worships in Gerizim or Jerusalem or Boise, Idaho, or any other place on this globe. The important thing is that they worship him in spirit, that is inwardly, and in truth, that is in reality. The temples, wherever they are, are symbols of that greater reality, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit of, of Christ. We are the temple now in which we, we worship. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. I must have read that line a dozen times before it ever sunk in. It hit me one day that God takes the initiative in our worship. That all of those hungers, all of those yearnings are really God saying, come closer. Draw near to me. And that's what Jesus is saying to this woman. God's seeking you. That's why I'm here. I didn't stumble across you. The, the Father's been seeking you all of your life. All of those desires, all of those longings, all of your hungers and thirsts are really longings for God. And I'm here to tell you that I'm the answer to all that questing. I'm the end of the search. In fact, he says specifically in verse 28, the woman the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. She, she was a God-fearer. She... Despite all of her confused theology, she was seeking after her Messiah. I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. That's a remarkable statement. It's so explicit. There is no other explicit statement of his Messiahhood anywhere in the New Testament. He didn't even say that to the disciples. But He saw in this woman a discerning, intelligent Mind, open heart, and so he opened his heart to her. I'm the one you're looking for. <laughs> I'm the Messiah. One thing that occurs to me as I come to the end of the story is that the witness is all about him. Jesus said, "You're to be witnesses of me." Let's not get tangled in theological arguments when people want to want to engage me in in that kind of dis. Discussion. I, I, I say well i don 't know. It's, it's, yeah there's some difficult questions but let 's talk about Jesus most people have very inexact notions of God they have no, no idea who God is I want them to know who God is you want to know who God is look at Jesus what he what he says what he does how he treated people that 's the way God is let 's talk about Jesus don 't argue um Paul said in that passage that I read to you earlier, the servant of God must not strive, but be patient with all, gentle, in meekness, that is, non-defensively, instructing those that oppose themselves. If if perhaps God will grant them repentance and give them deliverance from the the enemy who has taken them captive to do his will. Non-Christians, even hostile non-Christians, even those that oppose you, are not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. They've been victimized by Satan. And Paul says they will be delivered if we will be gentle, if we will be kind, if we will be non-defensive, if we will have good manners, if we'll be courtly, if we'll be courteous, and if we'll tell them the truth. Basically, the truth is the truth about Jesus. Jesus said, be witnesses of me. Don't argue with people. Don't debate with them. It's alright to engage them, uh, for a few moments if they have some, you know, you feel that their problems are really problems. But by and large, arguments, theological arguments are never about what they're about, if you know what I mean. People's objections to the gospel are not intellectual. I have never met a non-Christian who remains a non-Christian for rational reasons. People reject Christ for moral reasons. I have held on the authority of our Lord. They love darkness rather than light. I was standing at the back of a gathering in, in Sproul. Uh, I was on the steps of Sproul Hall one day at Berkeley, and I was listening to Holy Hubert preach. He's a street preacher in Berkeley. Quite a guy. He had a tooth knocked out because some student slugged him right in the mouth one time. Now, he never replaced the tooth. It's kind of a badge of courage. And there's a student standing in the back with his armor out A very pretty young. Uh, young woman, and he was heckling Hubert. Hubert endured it for 10 or 15 minutes, and then he pointed at the young man. And he said, I know what your problem is. He said, you want to sleep with that young lady? The guy turned as white as a sheet. He just nailed him right between the eyes. See, people don't reject Christ for intellectual reasons. The heart has reasons that reason doesn't have, Pascal said. Real reason is underlying, and in every case, it's moral. That's why it's senseless and useless to engage people in an extended, vigorous theological debate. The issue is Christ. Talk about Him. We are His witnesses. Uh, this uh, dear woman went back to Samaria, as you know, and she she evangelized the whole region, beginning to tell all the men because she had a better relationship with the men than she did with the women, and she said, "Come see a man who told me everything I ever did." She had come to the the well filled with shame. She went back shameless. Come see this woman, who, this man who opened up my heart, and revealed me for what I am. People began to flood down that uh, the alluvial slope that goes from Sychar down to down to the well, and and uh, later Jesus would point that out to the disciples. Look, he says, the fields are already white into harvest. You're going to get to reap what you haven't even sown. This woman was a marvelous evangelist. And according to tradition, I have no idea if any of this is accurate, she uh, followed our Lord for a time until his crucifixion, and then she went to Carthage, that awful place that was the most morally decadent city on the face of the earth. Carthaginians even grossed out the Romans, who were not paragons of righteousness, believe me. She went to Carthage, became a missionary an evangelist there. Eventually was martyred for her faith, imprisoned and martyred, and as the story is told, she led Nero's daughter to Christ in the course of her uh, evangelism. I, I know nothing more about this woman than what we read in the passage, but here's one who, who became filled and flooded with the Spirit of God and was able to multiply our Lord's ministry many times sober because she just went everywhere telling people what Jesus had said to her. That's what we do. That which you've seen in her declare. It's all we can do. There's a wonderful statement made about John in John 10. John the Baptist. John had been dead for some years. Uh, Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed and many people came to him. Listen to this. They said, even though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. Did you hear that line? Everything that John said about this man—that's what Christian witnesses. It's true. And many in that place believed in Jesus. Man, what a what an epitaph for one's grave. He or she didn't do any mighty works, but everything he said about Jesus, everything she said about Jesus is true. and Many believed on him because of the, that person's word. That would be my prayer for myself and for you. A you know, friend of mine says, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. And we, uh, we go out somewhat ineptly to, to give witness to Christ. But we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and He he anticipates our witness. I hope you understand that. He did not corroborate our witness. We corroborate His. Jesus said, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And our witness comes along behind and simply corroborates the work that the Spirit of God is already doing in in people's hearts. Every time I think about this woman, I think of an incident that happened to Carolyn some years ago. Um, We were in a gathering of Christians in Palo Alto, California, and uh, Ron Ritchie, who happens to be, who was speaking to our men this weekend, was talking about the uh, Good Samaritan. Uh, the Good Samaritan, you know, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And the point of the Good Samaritan is the next person you meet, that's your neighbor. So Ron made that point in his sermon, and as Carol and I were driving home, Carolyn said, uh, okay, is that me? the next person I meet is uh, my neighbor? And I said, yep, I think so, and. So uh, she made some kind of vow to herself, and the next morning as she was going someplace, uh, it, was, it was raining like crazy, and she was going to the store or something, she saw a couple standing alongside, a black man, a white woman, picked him, a little baby, she, the woman was carrying a little baby, she felt sorry for him, they were just drenched, so she got him in the car, driving along the road, started chatting with him, found out that he was uh, from Puerto Rico, she was a Jew from uh, New York, the little baby's name was Hadassah. Uh, they were not married. They were living together, but the baby was theirs. Uh, she asked uh, if they were interested in talking about spiritual things. Diane said, I don't think I am, but uh, Junior is. He reads a Bible. Carolyn said, do you have a Bible? She said, no. I had a brand new leather-bound New Testament that I just bought the day before sitting on the dashboard. She gave my New Testament to uh, <laughs> Diane. <laughs> so easy for you to do. said, will you read it? Diane said, yep. Carolyn wrote her name on the flyleaf and her phone number. And the next day, and just said, if you ever have any trouble, give me a call. Next day, Diane called. They'd been thrown out of their apartment. All their clothes were in the front yard. Carolyn picked her up, brought her home, eventually found a place for them to stay, eventually led her to Christ. About ten years ago, we, we lost track of Diane. Junior. We knew that they had split up. They'd gone separate ways. As far as I, as we know, he never became a believer. She, she went on to go to San Jose Bible College and, uh, got involved in a, in a ministry to, to Jews in, in that area. And about 10 years ago, Carolyn got a little tract in the mail from Diane. She had married one of the leaders of the Chosen People Ministry. Some of you know that ministry, uh, Ministry of Evangelism to Jews. She had married one of the leaders of that of that ministry, and the title of the track, (laughs) I still can hardly talk about it, was the woman who came out of the rain. (laughs) And it was a story of what had happened that day. Uh, And somehow I've always connected those two together. the woman at the well that Jesus met and who became this uh, very effective missionary for our Lord and and what God did through Carolyn's life in touching that that most unlikely person. So, uh, what you've seen and heard, declare. Now, I have a, a bit of a family business I'd like to conduct, and uh, it's hard to even know where to begin. When Carolyn and I first came to Idaho 17 years ago, we began to pray that, that God would use us to touch this entire state. We don't either want to have delusions of grandeur, but we sure didn't want to waste our lives. And God has done that in remarkable ways. He opened up the Statesman articles. Those early years uh writing with Bill Edlin were fun and uh, exciting. And <laughs> <laughs> um, we've seen God do great things through this church, this this body of believers many lives through the home Bible studies, the growth groups, and men's uh, Bible studies, women's Bible studies, the women's conference, and and, and literally this church, not because of me, but because of where you have gone and what you have done in this state, this church is known all over the state, that's been God's uh, doing, the uh, study center has produced uh, leaders, teachers. Uh, I think now there are seven or eight churches in Idaho that are pastored by either ex-elders here at Cole or uh, people that graduated from our our study center. It's been exciting uh, 17 years. One of the other ways that God uh, brought, brought us into touch with other people in the state is Idaho Mountain Ministries. As you know, that's this friendship ministry that we have to pastoral couples, uh, basically it's Carolyn and me and a few other people that have, have joined with us in this ministry, friends of IMM and members of the body, and uh, we just spend a lot of time with hanging out with pastoral couples and encouraging them and helping them in in, in their very difficult ministries. I've said before, some of these places are really cold not only is the physical environment harsh, the spiritual environment is as well. A lot of carnality, a lot of just hard things that happen to them, and our we we see ourselves, as I said before, as Aaron and her, you know, just holding up their arms and str- trying to strengthen them in their in their ministry. Uh, my heart has been there. My heart has always been here. Uh, I have. Really love this body of people. You are a wonderful group of people to, to minister to, dear friends, our best friends. Come out of this congregation and out of the staff and and the elders. And uh, so, when I say what I have to say, I, I want you to understand that our heart is here as much as it is in Idaho Mountain Ministries. But over the years, God's been tugging in our hearts and and telling us, at least for the last two years, that we need to be moving uh in that uh in that direction. And the time has come. Therefore uh, we have submitted our resignation to the elders, uh, effective March the thirty first. Uh, it's not an easy decision, believe me, it's been a long and prayerful process. Uh, we dearly love few people. But God has said go, and we've said okay. Uh, we're not leaving this body. Uh, we will always worship here. This is going to be our place of uh, our, our body. Uh, we will be spending most of our time working with, uh, with couples and with churches uh, around the state. And uh, Steve will be telling you something of, of what's ahead for us uh, as a church uh, in thinking about our departure, there are two passages that come to mind. One is Psalm 95, 6 and 7. Uh, David said, Let's kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. One of the questions that Carolyn and I have had over and over again is, Who will care for this flock? Not that we feel that we're indispensable, but uh, we dearly love you all. And one of the passages that has come to mind is, is this one. You're his flock. God is your shepherd. He's not only our shepherd, he's yours as well. And then my prayer has been another of David's statements when he prays, save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them uh, forever. What can I say except that we just dearly love you people and this has been a A difficult decision. We have a great deal of anticipation about the future. We're excited about what God has in store for us, but uh, it also brings an immense amount of sadness to think of tearing up some of the roots that have been growing for 17 years. We hope the relationships will endure. We uh, dearly love you people. You have been a delight to teach. I have never been in a congregation in which there is less criticism and and, uh, more support. You are a loving, wonderful bunch. And uh Carolyn and I just want you to know how much we appreciate the last 17 years. Now, Steve, you better get up here.
1: <laughs> That's a uh, tough act to follow. Uh, I'll keep this short, however. Uh, I'm here on behalf of the elders, and uh, the elders uh, are united in their uh absolute love and appreciation of this guy. He has... uh uh just done a remarkable job over the years uh, for this body of believers and we uh we certainly appreciate that he has to endure these elder meetings where we we talk about the impact that he's had here and uh and try not to get embarrassed but uh we really do uh, appreciate you David and you know that and uh you know I think about the the impact that he's had here and then I I consider all of the uh, churches that he's going to be, he and Carolyn are going to be touching in this new ministry, and the uh, that impact is just going to be magnified. And so, when we looked at it, when we look at it from from God's perspective, from a kingdom perspective, um, you know, we just realize that uh, what he's done here, he'll be able to do uh, many, many times over throughout the Intermountain West. So, uh, from that standpoint, it is exciting. However, we do uh, find ourselves in a transition period. It was about a year ago when uh, David began talking to us, and we uh, began to realize that sooner or later God's uh, tugging would let him know, he and Carolyn both know, that it was time to uh, to get into this type of a ministry full-time. Uh, the only thing was he didn't know, and we didn't know exactly when that would be. So, uh, But uh, knowing that they are definitely God's people, they listen to what he has to say, and they follow his lead. Uh, it's uh, it's become clear to them that now is the time. So we are in a transition period. Uh, what that means is we've asked him, first of all, to uh, continue with some teaching responsibilities, a little to a lesser extent, but uh, teaching responsibilities through uh, June. We've um, also appointed Chris Riddell as an interim senior pastor. To uh, to assist and and uh, um, ease the transition period. In accordance with our bylaws, we've created a um, a committee, a, a pulpit committee, composed of five uh, elders, and um, those those elders' job will be to begin the process of identifying um, potential candidates for uh, for this position. So basically that's our uh, that's our transition plan as it currently uh exists. We are anxious to to hear from you and we are uh continue to uh to rely on God to give us wisdom on on how we proceed from here. I would like to mention that we've got a, a congregational meeting scheduled for February 12th where we can talk about this a little bit more and get some input from uh, from you folks, and maybe answer some of your questions. If in the meantime however any of the any of you uh, would like to speak to an elder on the back of the of the brochure are the names and phone numbers our home phone numbers of of all the elders uh, i encourage you to give us a call if you if you want to find us during the day most most of us work at any rate and um uh, it might be easier to find don pettinger and uh, chris rudell here at the church so um you're uh, you're welcome to do that but we do want to hear from you so uh, I'd just like to uh, close in prayer for both for David's uh, and Carolyn's ministry as well as, as this body here. So will you join me in prayer? Father, at this time we uh, want to hold up David and Carolyn to you, ask that you'll bless this uh, decision to move into to a ministry where they can touch so many lives and so many churches throughout the Intermountain West. You've blessed that ministry over the years, and I just trust that you'll continue to do that. And it's uh, with great anticipation and real excitement that I think about the uh, all the, the lives that uh, that these folks can reach. I just pray that as they rely on you, that that'll become, uh, become very possible. And for those of us here at Cole, I, uh, I thank you that uh, they're going to continue to make this their home church. Thank you that we'll be able to continue to have contact with them. But I, uh, I pray that you'll be part of the, uh, the elder meetings as we, as we plan out the transition. I pray that you'll be part of this body as we uh, rely on you and look to you to meet our needs as you have so uh, graciously in the past. So we just, uh, I commit this time to you, this body to you, and I ask for your, uh, your continued blessing on us. And again, I, I too uh, look forward with great anticipation to what you have in store for this body. I, I know it's truly great things. And uh, I just thank you this morning for uh, your faithfulness to us. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.